Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening. It's wonderful to be with you again. This week's portion is the double Parsha of Achremos Kedoshim. So let's start in the stone chumash, that's the blue chumash that we use in shul, on page 648. Page 648, Pasuk 13. Pasuk 13, top of the page. So this is a, a mitzvah, maybe not everybody is familiar with this mitzvah, but this is an actual practical mitzvah that we observe today. And the Torah says as follows. So every person, including those who are born Jewish and those who convert and become part of the Jewish people, who is going to trap or capture either a chaya or an oaf for eating and to shecht it, to slaughter it, when the blood is spilled through the process of shechita, uh, of slaughtering, the blood, at least partially, should be covered with earth. So, first of all, there are three categories of animals. There is behema, which means a domesticated animal, like a cow or a sheep or a goat. There's a chaya. We don't, chaya is a non-domesticated animal. We don't eat so many. A deer is a kosher, non-domesticated animal. I don't know if anybody here is eating uh, venison regularly. Uh, but oaf, oaf is a bird. So uh, chicken, turkey, um, etc. Why is it that this mitzvah applies only to two categories, chaya and oaf, and not to behema? We'll leave that question for another time. But chaya is not so relevant to us, but oaf is relevant. And that means, and this is practical, this actually happens, when um, chickens are slaughtered, turkeys, ducks, geese, etc., when they're shechted, when they're slaughtered, so uh, the blood, there's blood that falls to the ground. The shochet is required to place a little bit of earth on top of the blood. The reason for this mitzvah, again, let's leave that to the side for now. But the Talmud teaches us something very interesting. The Talmud says that the way this mitzvah is performed is that the shochet has to take some earth in his hand and place it on top of the dam, the blood, but he is not allowed to kick the earth with his foot. That's what the Talmud says. Why? Shloye mitzvos bezuyos alav. In order not to act in a disrespectful manner to a mitzvah. This is a mitzvah to cover the, 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 the dam with earth. It should not be done in a way that is disrespectful or unseemly to do it with your foot, to kick it. It's, it's not proper. 
and therefore it should be done nicely with your hand. So this is the source of a principle that applies to many, many mitzvos. For example, um, it applies to any object that is used for the purpose of a mitzvah has to be treated with respect. For example, an esrog. So we use an esrog for a mitzvah on Sukkot. When we finish, we're not allowed to discard it in a, um, in a um, not nice manner. You're not allowed to throw it in a garbage can. Some people have the custom to save it and they use it to burn when they burn the chametz before Pesach, but not this year. We didn't burn chametz this year, but maybe next year. Or you could wrap it up and then discard it, but it was used for a mitzvah. It serves the purpose of a mitzvah and should not be treated with disrespect. It's called a cheftza de mitzvah, an object that is used for a mitzvah. Okay, that is a a general concept that applies to all objects that are used for a mitzvah should not be done in a disrespect, should not be treated in a disrespectful way. The Beis HaLevi says a very interesting thing. When a poor person approaches you, comes to your door and asks for tzedakah or on the street and they ask for tzedakah, wherever it is, they come to shul when shul's open. At the moment that that poor person is asking for tzedakah, that person is a chefza de mitzvah. They are, I don't want to use the word object, they're not an object, they're a person, but they are one who embodies the opportunity to perform a mitzvah because I will fulfill or not fulfill a mitzvah through this person. So says the Beis Alevi, I have to be careful to treat that person with respect. If I have to be careful to treat the blood of a chicken with respect and not kick dirt on it, certainly I have to treat with respect a human being through whom I have the opportunity to perform a mitzvah. Maybe you have the experience, sometimes a person comes and asks for tzedakah, maybe not in the nicest way, maybe they're a little bit pushy, maybe they're rude, maybe they're inappropriate. Sometimes it happens, we should always try if we're able to, to give tzedakah to whoever asks, but sometimes we decide we're not going to give tzedakah to this person. But even when that happens, we need to have in mind this mitzvah, this lesson that comes from the mitzvah of kisui hadam, of covering the blood of the bird. And likewise, much more so, we have to treat with respect this human being through whom we have the opportunity to perform a mitzvah, whether we are doing it or not. It's a very important lesson to learn, not only about performing a mitzvah, but the attitude we need to have towards performing a mitzvah and towards the opportunities that arise that give us that opportunity. I want to tell you a story. Happened to be a number of years. Again, along the lines of the importance of learning not just to do a mitzvah, but to do it with the right attitude, to do it with the right sensitivity, to do it with the right respect and enthusiasm. 
So this happened to me a few years ago. Uh, I'm sure you know that there is a practice in shul. Again, we don't have it right now, but hopefully we'll get it back soon. There is a practice of birchas kohanim, of duchening. The kohen, those who are priests, those who are kohanim, they, at a certain point in the service, they come to the front, they stand on the stage, and they give a bracha blessing to the entire congregation. Birchas kohen. And the procedure is that before they do that, someone who is a levi, a Levite, washes the hand of the Kohen, go out of the shul, wash the hand of the Kohen. Then the Kohen, with purified hands, comes into the shul and says, Birchas Kohen. You may know here outside of Israel, for example, in Montreal, we only do this prayer, this ceremony on Yom Tov and also only during Musaf. In Israel, it's done every day, every, every day of the year, and on Shabbos and Yom Tov it's done twice, for Shachris and for Musaf. And the truth is, it's a really good question without an adequate answer why is it that we're not doing it every single day like they're doing it in Israel? It doesn't seem to be a mitzvah that is connected to Israel. Again, we'll leave that for another time. But it happens that I'm a lady, and I, my family, we have the opportunity to wash the hands of the Kohanim before they do Birchas Kohan. It's a wonderful mitzvah. When I travel to Israel, it's a very special thing for me to be able to wash the hands of the kahanim every single day and on Shabbos twice. I don't have so many opportunities. How many opportunities in the course of the year do we have? It's a handful. But in Israel, it's every single day. Of course, I imagine for many people in Israel, you get used to it, you take it for granted, and it doesn't seem like such a big deal because you're doing it every day. But someone who comes from outside of Israel, it's a big thing. and I look forward to it, and it's something that's very special to me. But you realize in Israel, again, the Kohanim there are doing it every day, and it's normalized, it's part of the, the, the normal daily schedule. And you also understand a lot of Israelis in general do things in a rather quick manner without standing on ceremony. So. So what you have to do if you're a lady and you want to be able to wash the hands of the Kohen, especially if you're diving in a place that's small, first of all, it could be that there's no Kohen. But what you have to do is immediately after the Kedusha, the reader's repetition, if you're a lady, you have to run outside to the sink and you have to wait, especially if you're a guest like me. So you don't know everybody. You don't know if there's a Kohen there or not. So you have to run out to the sink and stand there and wait to see if a Kohen comes, and if he comes, then you're ready. So it once happened that right after Kedusha, I ran out of the shul, I was standing next to the sink. Of course, you understand it's a sink, so anybody could wash their hands. You don't necessarily know. People are not wearing a sign, I am a Kohen. People come up and wash their hands for all sorts of reasons. So I was in shul. I was standing by the sink. I was in the right place, the right time. And 
a Kohen came up and washed his own hands without me. I was standing right there waiting to wash his hands, but he washed his hands without me, and I really felt bad because I wanted the opportunity, and I was there. And I didn't understand why, why he didn't give me the chance to, to wash his hands. I was standing there for that purpose. So I called my brother. My brother lives in Yushalayim. My brother, of course, is also a lady. So I told him what happened. I said, Beryl, my brother, I said, what did I do wrong? So he said, um, were you standing next to the sink? I said, yes, I was right next to the sink. Then he said, were you holding the cup in your hand? <laughs> no, I didn't think that I needed to hold the cup in my hand that the Cohen would just rush up and, 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 and take it and wash his own hands. I was standing there, I thought that was enough. It was obvious that I was a lady, but it's not obvious. If you want the mitzvah, you can't sit back. If you want the mitzvah, you have to rush forward. You have to seize the opportunity. Carpe diem applies to mitzvahs. And I should have been standing with the cup in my hand so that a Kohen doesn't even have to hesitate and sees that I'm gonna start pouring the water as soon as he puts his hands out. So it's an important lesson to remember. I learned my lesson and I am more careful now when I go back to Israel to make sure that I'm not only standing in the right place, but I have the cup in my hand ready to pour as soon as the Kohen comes. The attitude and the way in which we perform a mitzvah, the respect that we show to a mitzvah is a very part of the quality of that mitzvah. Okay. Please turn a little bit later in the Parsha to page 652. Page 652 is near the end of the first Parsha, Achremos. And the Torah tells us about prohibited sexual relationships. The Torah tells us there are a number of relationships that are incestuous, and therefore the Torah prohibits them. And you know that incestuous relationships are one of the cardinal sins of Judaism, along with uh, murder and idolatry, but adultery and related offenses are a cardinal sin within Judaism. And the Torah says, page 652, Pasuk 18, near the middle of the page. The Torah says, A man is not allowed to marry a woman and her sister. Litzrar that will cause dissent or animosity, to uncover the nakedness of her during her lifetime. Okay, a man is not allowed to marry two sisters. You'll ask me a question. Our, our patriarch, our forefather Yaakov was married to two sisters. That's a very good question. Discuss that another time but we're not allowed to be married to two sisters. 
among all of the prohibitions in this section, there are two aspects that make this unique within this section. One is that the Torah gives us a reason. The Torah doesn't give a reason for any of the other prohibited relationships. The Torah just says, don't do it. I mean, you may think, I may think that I can figure out a logical reason. Torah says, don't marry your daughter-in-law, okay? Don't marry your aunt. A man shouldn't marry his aunt. So, but the Torah does not specify any reason for the mitzvah. However, in this passage, the Torah says, don't marry a woman and her sister, litzrar, because it will cause animosity between the two of them. So that's number one. There's a unique feature of this prohibition that a reason is given. And number two, this prohibition is the only one that is conditional. Because the Torah says, b'chayeha, while she is still alive. What that means is, if a man is married to a woman, and then, God forbid, she dies, she passes away, then the man is allowed to marry her sister. But this is the only one that has this condition. In any of the other relationships, for example, a man is not allowed to marry, let's say, uh, a mother and a daughter. That applies not only if one of them is alive even if one has passed away. If, if a man is married to a woman and she passes away, he is still not allowed to marry her daughter. That remains prohibited. There's no condition. It's only in the case of sisters that there's this condition that it only applies if both of them are alive. But if one of them has died, it's permitted. So the Ramban says, you learn something very important from this. Two ideas. Number one, you learn that there are two different categories of prohibited relationships. There is a category of prohibited relationship where the Torah does not give a reason. Why is it prohibited? Because God said so. Then there is another category which only has one example, where there is explicitly a moral purpose to that category in order not to cause animosity. Because you can imagine, to have, for a man to have more than one wife, it's quite likely the two wives will be jealous of each other at some point. And by the way, in the case in the Torah where a man did marry two wives, Yaakov, there was a lot of problems. It certainly doesn't seem like it was a good idea. It causes a lot of problems. What you see from this Ramban is something very important. There's a cardinal sin of prohibited sexual relationships. That's number one. Then there is a moral principle. Don't put one sibling in a situation that will lead to animosity with another sibling. And you see that the Torah is saying that that prohibition is just as serious as the cardinal prohibition of sexual relationships. What you see from this is how important it is to God 
and therefore how important it needs to be to us never to put a, a, a siblings in a situation that will lead to animosity for whatever reason any kind of favoritism of one child over another one sibling over another is strictly prohibited because it might lead to animosity as by the way we saw also with Yaakov and the way he treated his sons and it caused tremendous jealousy and terrible consequences between Yosef and his brother I've mentioned this many times before and I keep mentioning it because it is the most common example of this terrible phenomenon that I come across and that is when a parent or parents show favoritism to one child over another when it comes to inheritance and very often that leads to <laughs> tremendous divisiveness and tremendous animosity and breaking apart of families parents need to do everything in their power to try not to allow divisiveness and animosity between their children between siblings by taking the lesson from this pasuk in the torah according to the ramban of how serious it is that god himself prohibits a relationship specifically in a situation where it might cause animosity between one child one sibling and another okay let's move now to the second parsha of kedoshim and please turn to page 660 page 660 in the stone chumash the torah says pasuk 18 near the bottom of the page lo sikom do not take revenge nakama is the word for revenge or holding a grudge and the torah says you're not allowed to do it you're not allowed to take revenge what does it mean the talmud explains for example let's say you have two people and we'll call them reuven and shimon and on tuesday reuven says to shimon would you lend me your shovel i need to do some work would you lend me your shovel Ruvain says to Shimon, would you lend me your shovel? And Shimon says, no, it's a new shovel. I'm worried you're going to mess it up. I'm not going to lend you my shovel. The next day, on Thursday, two days later on Thursday, Shimon comes to Ruvain and says, would you lend me your hammer? I have to do some work. You have a hammer. I don't have one. Would you lend it to me? If Ruvain were then to say, listen, I asked you to borrow a tool. And you said no. So now you're asking me to borrow a tool for me? No, I'm not going to lend it to you. That's nakama. That is the prohibition of losikom, of taking revenge. I am acting in a way that is taking revenge about what you did to me. Torah says don't do it. So let me ask you a question. These two fellows, Reuven and Shiva. Reuven asks to borrow something from Shimon, and Shimon says, no. The next day, Shimon asks to borrow something from Ruvain, and now we say to this person, Ruvain, you better not say no. You better not take revenge. Because if you say no, you're gonna violate this prohibition. Wait a second, but why don't you tell the other guy? 
The other guy said no first. Why doesn't the Torah tell the other guy, if somebody asks to borrow something and it's not a terrible thing to you, don't say no. Why wait and seemingly allow a person to say, no, I'm not going to lend you something even though there's no real reason not to, and then only punish the person who retaliates, who takes revenge. What about the first person who said no? Didn't he do anything wrong? So I want to share with you an answer. And the answer goes like this. The first person who said no, again, when there was no real legitimate reason to say no, he also acted incorrectly. He violated a different, a different mitzvah, you shall love your fellow as you love yourself. In fact, that's the end of this Pusik. Again, page 660, the bottom of the page, Pusik 18. You shall love your fellow as you love yourself. I'm the Lord your God. You shall love your fellow as you love yourself. That means you should treat another person the way that you would want to be treated. So, if I would want that if I ask you, can I borrow something from me, you should say yes. If you come to me and ask, can you borrow something from me, I should say yes. And if I say no for no good reason, I have violated this mitzvah of Okay, well, if that's the case, then what is this mitzvah of losikam, of taking revenge? This is a completely different mitzvah. This is a completely different prohibition. This is separate. Losiko means the first guy is wrong. You asked to borrow something, he said no, he's wrong. He violated the Torah's will. But now the Torah says, when he comes to you, don't act based on someone else's wrong behavior. Because he acted wrongly to you is not a reason that you should act wrongly to him. That's what Losikam comes to teach us. And this is an incredibly important principle. It's something that is very difficult to practice, but it is incredibly empowering. Because the statement that is made by this mitzvah of Losikam is, you know what? I need to do what the right thing is. You're going to do something wrong? That's your cheshbon. You're going to have to deal with that. But I am not going to allow you to bring down my behavior. I am not going to allow you to determine that I will also act improperly. That's an amazing statement. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it takes tremendous self-control, but it's also very empowering. It says, I need to decide what is right for me. If you've done what is correct, that's fine. If you have not done what is correct, I'm not going to allow that to bring me down. And that's the significance of this mitzvah of losikom. I want to add to that a related idea from an earlier Pasuk. And this is a Pasuk at the top of the page, page 660 at the top of the page. Pasuk number 14, Yudalid, 
The Torah says, Lo Don't curse a person who is deaf. Now that's a very strange prohibition. Don't curse a person who is deaf. It's very strange because the Torah elsewhere already told us don't curse anybody. So if you're not supposed to curse anybody, a person who is deaf is included in, every, in anybody. Why would the Torah specifically say don't curse a person who is deaf, especially when that person is never going to know that you curse them? By virtue of being deaf, they are not going to know that you curse them. Why is there a separate prohibition just for the person who is deaf? So the Rambam says, the Torah is not only concerned with the feelings of the cursed person. The Torah is concerned with the feelings of the cursed person, but that's not the only concern. The Torah is also concerned that I should be a person that acts properly regardless of what the other person feels or does not feel. So therefore, the Torah is teaching us to train ourselves not only to protect others. The Torah does want to protect others from our mistreatment. But the Torah also wants that we should make the right choice and act the right way, even leaving aside what will happen to the other person. The intention of the mitzvahs of the Torah is not only to provide social harmony and to protect the feelings of the other person. The intention of the Torah is to make each one of us holy by acting in the proper manner. And that's what the Torah means in the beginning words of the Parsha, when the Torah says, Kedoshim to you, you should be holy. That's a general statement. All of the mitzvahs of the Torah are intended not only for the other person, not only for the social harmony, not only for what it does to the other person. It is all of the mitzvahs of the Torah are intended to make me a holier person. And that applies even if the person does not hear what I say. I still have to be careful how I speak. I want to just finish with one last piece. And that is the end of the Pusik that I read before at the bottom of the page, again, 660, Pusik 18, bottom of the page, the famous words, Ve'ahavta l'reacha kamocha. You shall love your fellow as you love yourself. Ani Hashem, I am the Lord your God. You know, that phrase has become so famous. According to Rabbi Akiva, it is Zeklal Gadol Batora. It is the main fundamental principle of the entire Torah. It's so well known and it's so discussed and it's so ingrained within us, it takes a little bit of an effort to appreciate how revolutionary it actually is, how counterintuitive it actually is. So I want to finish today 
by sharing something with you. Last week, a man in Israel, a very special man in Israel passed away, along with Nebuch, so many other people in Israel and here and around the world from the coronavirus. This man's name was Rabbi Yeshayahu Haber. You may have heard his name, you may not. Yeshayahu Haber, Rabbi Haber, founded an organization in Israel called Matnat Chayim, which literally means gift of life, and it is a voluntary kidney donation organization. And it is an organization that arranges matches and finds people who are willing to voluntarily donate a kidney. Every person has two kidneys. You only need one. It's possible under certain circumstances for a healthy person to donate a kidney. It could be to a family member, but it could be to a stranger. We've discussed this in the past, the incredible advances that have been made in medical technology that make this donation something that is, I won't call it routine, but something that is uh, safe and is certainly a mitzvah. Just last week, this organization, Matnat Chayim, succeeded in reaching 800 kidneys in Israel donated voluntarily through their organization. Now, what's amazing about this person, Rabbi Haber, is that it started from his own personal need. He once needed a kidney. And without a kidney donation, he would have died. And he was able, after a lot of time and effort, he was able to find a donor that donated a kidney to him. And his life was saved. There are a lot of people in the world that face a problem and then they solve it for themselves. Rebbe Haber was not that type of person because once he no longer needed a kidney himself, he began to think about other people that needed a kidney. And that is how he came through his own experience to develop this organization that created a structure that sought out people who would be willing to make a donation voluntarily of their kidney to a stranger. And he was tremendously successful. And the truth is that's the way a person should look at the world. When there is a problem, not only to look at solving the problem for myself, but once I've solved it for myself, what about everybody else that has that problem? And that's what Rabbi Haber did, an incredible man, Nebuchadnezzar passed away. But the reason I'm telling you this is because a few years ago, he did an interview on TV. And the reporter asked him the following question. He said, why would anyone want to donate a kidney to a stranger for free? which is a pretty good question. And Rabbi Haber gave the following answer. Rabbi Haber said, 
because he is not a stranger. He is a brother. That is the Ahavta Lurecha Kamocha. To be able to look at another person and to see a brother or a sister, that's revolutionary. That is Klal Gadol Batorah, the basic fundamental principle of the Torah, the Ahavta Lurecha Kamocha. Our friends, I want to wish you a very good night and a very good Shabbos.